Hey everybody, today's episode of Day 2 Cloud is sponsored by Datadog, and you've probably heard them. They're a pretty popular monitoring platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. If you'd like to know more, you can visit datadog.com slash day2cloud and get your free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash day2cloud. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. On this episode, we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite topic, and it's security. Now, I know what you're thinking. Security is difficult, and it's icky, and I want it to get away from me. But no, security is super important, and we've got an amazing guest, Tanya Janka. She is so knowledgeable about the topic and enthusiastic. She wants to let you know about what you can do to improve your security posture. What jumped out to you, Ethan? Dude, I love this conversation. Tanya is exactly what you said, very enthusiastic and is one of those people, the more I heard her talk and recount different issues that she's run into and make strategy advisements and uh, discuss different tools she's familiar with that are worth getting to know. It's like, she's forgotten more about security than I've ever learned, you know, and I've done <laughs> my time with firewalls and IDSs and Nessus and, uh, you know, and certifications along the way and all that stuff. So Tanya was just great and gave some very practical advice if you're moving to cloud, uh, exactly how you should think about security and what you should be considering. That's maybe a little different from what we would do on-prem. Absolutely. So get ready and enjoy this episode with Tanya Janka. Tanya, you are a security coach, trainer, and founder of She Hacks Purple. Welcome to the show. If, uh, if you don't mind, just tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. I am an application security nerd at large on the internet. <laughs> I do streaming, I do interactive sessions online, I give training, I blog, all the things. And basically, I'm just trying to help people secure the cloud and secure their applications that live on the cloud. Um, I've worked in tech for over 20 years, and I was a software developer for a long time. And then I switched into security and just got super obsessed. And mm. so, yep, that's me in a nutshell. Right. That's that's an interesting pivot going from application development to security, because I know app developers oftentimes get blamed for the lack of security in applications. So I'm curious how that metamorphosis happened. Was there a, like a triggering moment that you're like, oh, my God, security needs to happen? <laughs> there were a few triggering moments. So. Um, so I started writing code as a teenager and then got my very first job in tech exactly when I was 18. I'm like, I'm allowed, let's do this. Um, and I tried security a few times earlier in my career and just did not like it. So for mm. instance, I did some anti-terrorism activities on behalf of Canada and just ended up having nightmares all the time. Um, oh. So I was like, I'm not tough enough to work in security. That was, that was my thought. But I've adjusted that to say, I am not tough enough to work in anti-terrorism. But so then one day... As a, so I was a senior software developer in the government for around a decade, and I met a hacker. And so I've actually always been a musician playing in bands, releasing folk albums and stuff. And so he was in a band and I was in a band. I'm like, let's, let's play together, obviously, right? That's what musicians do. We're like, yeah, let's play on a show. <laughs> yeah. um, so then we became like besties. And he kept telling me, you'd make such a good hacker. 
you should be a hacker. You'd be so good. And I was like, <laughs> nah, I'm a software developer. I'm basically like the king of tech. I make something out of nothing every day. What's better than that? And he just kept showing me things. So he kept coming in for lunch and learns. And then all these other people kept, because I ran this training thing at work. And then eventually I was like, well, I do, I do want to know that. And I do want to know this. And so eventually after a year and a half of hassling me, he convinces me to be his apprentice. And then he hires me for my first job. And then I ended up working um, at Elections Canada. Like they run the, the elections as you, so mm -hmm. in Canada, we have like one organization that runs the federal election across the whole country. Um, and so I was, I was working there, like leading the dev team, all the stuff I always do, but then I kept doing all the security activities and then they ended up giving me a job on the security team. And then I ended up running all the security for the election across the country, which was super exciting. And since we weren't yeah. in the news, you know, it went well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I got like this, this full-time penetration testing job. And then I moved specifically into my love, which is AppSec and cloud security. So the cloud is like, it's very exciting um, as a yeah. security nerd because there's so much more potential to do so many more things. And also I don't have to crawl around freezing cold in data centers anymore. Mm. <laughs> oh, I feel that, you know, spending eight hours in one of those 65 degree rooms, like it doesn't seem quite that cold, but then the chill just gets in your bones and oh yeah well i don't I, do that anymore <laughs> when i first became a penetration tester so um i was living in ottawa and ottawa gets very 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 hot and very 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 cold and so it was july so i was wearing a pretty dress because i had no plans to go to a data center that day so uh my manager was sexist we'll just leave it at that and was like constantly mm. felt i couldn't do things because i was a woman and so then i stubbornly was like i can do anything you can do so he sent me to the data center while I was wearing a dress. And for anyone that knows, all the coldness comes up. My legs were completely numb for like a day. And we had to stay there eight hours. And, I, and the guys are like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. <laughs> meanwhile, I'm like, <laughs> totally numb. Like, can't feel anything below my knee. I'm just like. <laughs> the air pressure under this perf tile. It's working great. Really, really good. <laughs> I know. But then I showed him like, you can't set me a challenge. I'm not going to meet. So tough crap. <laughs> so nice. it, yeah. Well, I'm glad you don't have to do that anymore. Yes. And our, our topic today is cloud security, building that presence of security in the cloud. I think there's sort of a weird presumption that people think they're on-prem is super secure and cloud is where all the work needs to happen. Do you think that's true or are both of them kind of in trouble? Uh, I disagree. So I used to work for Microsoft for a while as a cloud advocate. Mm -hmm. And so the first time I turned on Azure, and this is the same with all the clouds. So this isn't Azure specific. The visibility that I had as a security professional was so amazing. So when you have data centers, you probably have a bunch of little mini data centers that you're unaware of, like underneath some person's desk. And mm -hmm. as a security person, that is literally a complete and total nightmare. Um, so it's like, oh yeah, that closet that says, you know, maintenance or whatever. Oh yeah, there's like, you know, data center in there, but you don't <laughs> know, so you can't protect it. So in right. the cloud, they can't charge you money 
unless they can show it to you. Mm. So that means I could see everything for the first time ever. And immediately, like they put me on this team of advocates where we're supposed to, you know, promote Azure and products and stuff. But what I did was act like this, the team security person. I'm like, you turn on that firewall. You, I see you over there setting cores to star. Nope. You and (laughs) having like one-on-one meetings, adding security to their stuff that they were promoting. (laughs) Can you right. put security into like, uh, like, like, like buckets? You're talking about all this great visibility you happen to have in the Azure cloud. And so was that like, like categorized in a way that you could talk to the, the you do this and you do that kind of thing? Um, so in Azure specifically, they have this thing called Security Center. And so there's no exact comparison in AWS or GCP. It's like slightly different. So what they decided to do is put every single security thing possible into one giant dashboard. Basically, um, it runs VA scans, so vulnerability assessment scans, on all your infrastructure all the time if you will allow them. So if you migrate something in, it'll ask, can I put an agent on there? And you should say yes. And then... It just VAs everything all the time. And then it gives you a prioritized list of recommendations. And you just start at the top. So the first one is always turn on multi-factor authentication for every single important account. And that's always number one. That is by far the most, like it's the keys to your kingdom. The login for an owner account in the cloud is so valuable. (laughs) And as an attacker, that is what you want. And multi-factor authentication, like having more than just a password to log in, just basically takes the chances of you having your credentials compromised, like breached, taken, down to very, very, very little. It makes it borderline impossible for attackers. And it's such this huge win. So Azure will literally nag you. <laughs> um, and, but so then you can break it down into like, this is operating systems, missing patches, poor configurations. It'll you know have like more application and app sex sorts of activities. It'll say like more network things, et cetera, and identity. So you can drill down into different areas. So for instance, if I know a team is in charge of identity, I could just assign them all of those things to look at. Um, It also lets you turn on security controls. So like a security tool that you buy from a vendor for big groups of things. So you could turn it on for 100% of things. You could turn it on for just like a resource group or you could turn it on for, you know, a subnet, et cetera. And so that's really, really super magical from a security perspective, because previously I would say, okay, so I want to implement this security control and then I'm going to try to run around and herd cats and get permission from every single group to turn this thing on. But instead what I can do now is I can see, oh, this person owns this and that person owns that. Great. I'm going to you know, send them a message and say, like, here's a screenshot of all of these resources. And I plan to turn this on on Friday. How do you feel about that? Where before, like, it, it was just a mess. Like, I never had this complete view of everything. Honestly, as a pen tester, quite often, I would go into a data center and they would be like, yeah, it's in there somewhere. I'm like, there's like oh. hundreds of servers in here. What are you talking about? And they're like, we think it's in the subnet. And I'm like, nothing's labeled. So I'm seeing they're plugging into things, pinging things and like end mapping things to like see where stuff is. And I'm like, you know, you're paying me by the hour, right? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> so say, say I'm a, uh, 
somewhat new to the cloud or I've been given a task, hey, we need to get our cloud environment secured. And I need to think in broad categories. Like Azure, you've just given us, you talked about the dashboard and a lot of specific examples. So if we zoom out a bit and think about mm -hmm. uh, whether it's Azure or any cloud, you know, in a broad sense, what are the security category buckets we should be considering so that we know we've got a full and, and you know, mature approach to security for our cloud environments? Okay, so one of the things is is network design, network security. And specifically, I would say, so things that you can do in the cloud that were much more difficult on-prem would be to implement zero trust and assume breach designs. And by zero trust, I mean, so previously what security people used to do is we would do what they did in medieval times. We would make a huge perimeter, like a big gate or a moat or whatever, we call them firewalls. And if you were outside the firewall, you were bad. And if you're inside the firewall, you're good. However, it turned out that sometimes people would get in past the firewall and then they would be bad. Or insider threats, whether it be mistake or intentionally malicious, bad things would happen. So instead, zero trust means, for instance, let's say you have a virtual machine. So all the ports are closed all the time, except the ones you need. And it has like its own firewall and it only allows access. So we, we call them ACLs, but access control lists. So let's say you have an app and a database. So that database should only ever allow connections from that app or from the database administrator. Everything else totally denied. This is a crowd that gets that, Tanya. We're right with you on that stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, this, th th these people, they know ACLs and they know uh, okay, micro-segmentation probably and uh, you know, a awesome, bit about awesome. zero trust. But I mean, the, the thing about zero trust that that would be, you know, in my mind, is just the difficulty of implementation, getting a consistent yeah. you know, policy across there. So, but, but okay, so we got networking as a, you know, one of your category buckets to look at for our cloud environments. How else do you categorize? Identity. So a lot, I, I've heard a lot of people say identity is the new perimeter and whatever catchphrases you want to use. A, a thing that I have seen at some client sites, I do like coaching, which is like hyper-focused consulting. And what I'll see is, so most people aren't 100% in the cloud. What happens is they're on-prem and then for three to five years, they move to the cloud. Unless you are a startup or you are specifically an IT company, it usually takes years to migrate. And so you have this hybrid environment. And what I've seen a lot of is, oh, like we have our identity that's on-prem and we have our identity system that's in the cloud. You should just use one, always use one. Because then if you have a contractor quit, you're not trying to manually remember to remove them from here and from here, then they're just the syncing, it's just, it's a mess. It's much better to use one identity system and then use role-based authentication. So like you can customize all of this stuff. Um, the idea is that having multiple identity systems are a giant mess. If you have everything go based on identity, you can track things a lot better. And also specifically for applications and other systems, since you have like lots of operations folks, in your audience using service accounts. And then we, as security people, we set up alerts based on things like that. So if Tanya's account tries to log in to a database server in the middle of the night, that doesn't make sense. A person's account should never log in. It should always be the service account for that application. 
So part of securing things in the cloud is setting up automated alerts on basically everything you can think of. A lot of the cloud providers actually provide a bunch of this stuff out of the box. But as security professionals, when you have a security incident, a thing you can do in the cloud that you have trouble to do on-prem is like setting up like automated alerts and responses. So you can write a serverless app that just responds to the thing that has happened. Um, in Azure, they call that playbooks. Uh, they have a completely different name for it in AWS, but basically you just set up logic apps. So like functions that trigger off of certain things in your cloud environment, and then you write your own custom response. So, so for identity, you, you talked about user context, you talked about service accounts. Do you also consider endpoint identification, like profiling when something new pops up on the network or uh, a new IaaS instance is spun up, something like that to, to fall under identity? Um, no, Okay. I personally don't consider that identity. I consider identity like the accounts. Yep. Gotcha. Another big bucket in the cloud specifically is application security. And that includes APIs and there are APIs all over the cloud. And you don't want people talking to them that should not be. <laughs> and the cloud out of the box provides a whole bunch of nice things like they provide a service mesh, which is an infrastructure layer, and it basically manages all of the stuff for you. And you're like, awesome, that's so nice. It encrypts it end to end, it starts them, stops them, all of that stuff. And it can add things like resource quotas and throttling so that like someone isn't calling your API 55 times per second, or it's not slowly calling it once every five seconds for three weeks. Because um, chances are, Things like that are an attack, so it can stop things and alert you on things. There's a lot of problems with APIs being abused. And by that, I mean like being called all the time by people that shouldn't be calling them. There's also um, API gateways <laughs> that can help with that. So they do like the authentication and the authorization. They can also add some throttling for you. So like the software section of the cloud is kind of a sticky topic for a lot of people. So having previously worked for a cloud provider, we would talk a lot about the shared responsibility model. For instance, if you give someone a platform as a service, it's like, okay, great. So we will, we'll, we're going to patch that for you and maintain that for you from like an infrastructure perspective. But if you put a wildly insecure app on top and then configure it really poorly, like that's your problem. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. But if we give you an infrastructure as a service, like you need to patch that. We're not doing that for you. That's your biz. You didn't want to pass. You wanted you wanted this. So now you need to do that. And like we can't help you. Um, and so like I spent a lot of time explaining like the shared responsibility model and like then just use a platform as a service if you don't want to do patching. Like it costs more. I know that's because someone's doing part of your work for you. <laughs> it sucks or it doesn't depending upon how you look at things. <laughs> There's so many layers to the cloud or potential layers because you, you mentioned some of them. You can go IaaS and kind of manage it yourself. You can go PaaS and some of that's managed by somebody else. Or you can go, I guess, a layer above that is just SaaS, just consuming something as a service uh, like Office 365, for instance, uh, you know, for going down the Microsoft route. And then there's some sort of identity layer under the whole thing. Now, if I'm an ops person and I'm concerned with security, where do I even know to where to start in terms of what I should be looking at first? Should I start with like the application and work my way down? Or should I start with that 
base level of whatever infrastructure I'm working with and work my way up? So this depends on if you have application security professionals where you work, because if there's an AppSec team and an ops team that's separate or like a security operations center, like a SOC. So if there's an AppSec person, that AppSec person should be handling the application layer. Like they should be handling all the software stuff, like the SaaS, the APIs, all those things. They might come to you to work with you. For instance, for the APIs, they'll want to talk to you and be like, we think service mesh is cool. What do you think? Can we do this? Because you are the operations folks that have to support it. Um, but the actual building of the applications, that should be them. But a lot of places don't have an AppSec team. A lot and a lot have one security person who, whose hair is on fire. And, <laughs> and if I were that person, I would always start with apps because we are unfortunately the number one cause of breach. We are the number one cause of data leak or data breach. Every year we have one so every year that I've looked, so 2016, 17, 18, and 19, and so far, like the first section of 2020, um, we've won the distinction of being, like by a vast majority of causing the breaches is insecure software, which is embarrassing as an AppSec professional. But anyway, at least I have job security. So <laughs> if I were an ops person, the number one thing I would start with is just like putting multi-factor authentication on everything and installing a password manager, like an enterprise level one. So if someone quits, you're not lost um, and like walking that down. And then if you have no AppSec people, like look at your apps, you can do some really basic things for quick wins. So quick wins in the cloud, look at that dashboard. And if there are warnings, like if Azure is giving you recommendations, just knock that stuff out as fast as you can. If you don't use like, I don't mean to talk about Azure a lot. I don't work there anymore, just to be clear. <laughs> but I'm, I'm still allowed to like it. Um, but basically like running VA scan tools. So like Nessus, Nexpos, like things like that, that will just like go over all your VMs and just tell you this one's on fire. Here's why, like you're missing this patch from like three years ago. That's a really critical security thing. Like, could you please, could you please update this? Um, so having those run constantly and then actually like fixing the stuff that you find, I know wacky idea um, and like prioritizing it. So if you can scan all the things regularly and in the cloud, that is a thing that you can set up and then just like all the criticals, we need to knock those out within X number of business days. And then you can also run, sometimes people call them VA scans, but in AppSec, we call them like dynamic application security testing scans like DAST. So something like running Burp Suite Pro, running a Wasp Zap, running Acunetics, running AppScan, running, et cetera. You can run that on a running app in a test environment, and it will give you a bunch of things. And most of them will be true positives. It will have a crap ton of false negatives. So by that, I mean the results it shows you, most of them will actually be a thing. The things it doesn't show you, it'll miss 70-ish percent of things wrong with your app. You're like, why is that acceptable? Because okay, that's you, a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the reason why you want to find that 30% is because that is the low hanging fruit that some kid in their mom's basement that's like really angry against the world will be able to find in like 10 minutes and then exploit. Mm. 
So if you fix that low-hanging fruit, you've officially become slightly difficult to hack, which means a whole bunch of potential malicious actors will be like, oh, let's just move on. Right. They're looking for targets that are easy. And if they don't know anything about you and they're not directly targeting you and your organization, they're going to go, okay, well, I did my standard scan. Nothing's there. I'm going to move on to the next target. It only becomes a problem that other 70% when a malicious actor is specifically targeting your organization and being more thorough. Yes. So what can I do about that 70%? Okay. So then you would want to build an application security program. And I literally, I teach that day and night. Um, (laughs) And so you would want to, basically you would want to be able to find and fix vulnerabilities in written and running code. So do do you mean program like, like a a set of operational procedures within your organization or like code software? Software, specifically software. So if you're doing infrastructure as code, you can scan that code for vulnerabilities. You can. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's like a slight difference between what I would call custom software or general software versus infrastructure, which is quite often still software. Like people will often say, oh, well, operating systems are software, too. However, it's the snowflake factor. So if you have Windows 10, Service Pack 1, you know, patch number this, and I also have that, we have the same vulnerabilities and the same defenses, essentially. Right. So when you run Nessus, it goes and it looks at like this predetermined list of things. It's not Snowflake it's looking at. It knows very well what it's looking at and it's ready for you. But the DAST scanner, the reason why it misses so much stuff and so many AppSec tools, people complain. They're like, there's so many false positives because each time it's looking at a complete Snowflake. So let's say each of you make a calendar app and I make a calendar app. You better believe it. All three of those will be completely different. Right? Like the code base will look different. The GUI will look different. The libraries we choose to include in it will be different. And so when it's scanning, it can't say, oh, this is this perfect copy that I'm looking at. It's looking at Snowflake. So it has to look at like different patterns. And it's like, I think this might be a thing. Could you look here? And that's why AppSec tends to be more difficult because it's not perfect copy. So then you have to have a human's eyes look at the thing. And there's only so many sets of human eyes. But there's tooling that can help you with that too. Like I, I, I know in Python, there are security plugins that will just take your code, analyze it for common you know, bad practices and you know, recommend improvements. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so when it analyzes the written code, that is called SAST, Static Application Security Testing. And those have way worse false positives than DAST. So DAST might be, let's say, 70% correct to the stuff it gives you. A SAST tool will be 98% incorrect. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, but, but imagine this. Imagine you have an app and it has 20,000 lines of code. If you sit there and read 20,000 lines of code, like you'll probably quit your job. And so you take this tool and it will analyze it. And it's like, I think I found 200 things. And you're like, oh, really? So you look at those 200 things and then 20 of them actually are a thing. And you're like, awesome. So you do spend less time. And a SaaS tool also can do recursion in a way that a human brain can't. Like it can go hundreds of layers deep. It can go through, you know, function, 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 function. So it's many, many layers down past where a human being can understand and comprehend. And so 
it can find a bunch of things that human beings just can't find. So that's why we use those tools. But SAS requires an expert to go through those results. So like Python, so like, for instance, I think PyCharm is a good one for Python. And it will tell you a bunch of things. But like, if you want to find everything, you have to turn it on. So it shows you the extra things where you're like, this is nothing. Why are you bothering me? Yeah. Well, PyCharm will give you a lot of things about formatting. It'll resolve a bunch of problems with uh, dependency libraries and such. And then there's a plugin you can get for PyCharm that'll actually look at security vulnerabilities for you. Now I've been look it's I don't think it's been published yet. It could be I'm a little ahead of myself because I heard the guy that wrote the thing being interviewed and so it's fresh in my mind. But Tanya, a lot of what we've been talking about here feel very familiar to me. I've done a little bit of work in SecOps. Um, what's different when I'm in the cloud about my security approach. So, so, so give us some practical examples. You know, let's say uh, we're about to move some of our customer facing apps to the cloud. Where would I start with my security posture uh, thinking? Is there, can I bring a lot of it forward? Or are there things I need to change? A lot of people talk about like architecting for security in the cloud. And I would say that ideally it would be similar to how you would architect things on-prem, except for you have all these cool extra cloud native tools that you can use. Mm. So when you pay a cloud provider uh, for a VM, you actually have all these free tools that most of the public cloud providers, so like the top three, for instance, are providing as part of it. So monitoring might cost more, but it will tell you, you know, this is wrong and this is wrong and you don't have to pay extra for that. So definitely making sure that you use every single free tool out of the box that you are given as part of your security program when you move to the cloud. So like learning about them, turning all of them on that are appropriate and configuring them so that they work for you. So for instance, planning for zero trust, planning for assume breach. So assume breach is um, sim like it kind of goes like hand in hand with zero trust. So the idea is like designing things and reacting in a way such that you assume that you have been breached. So if someone says like, oh, I found this, this big security bug in this app, you start the investigation process as though it has been breached. And you go and look in your logs to make sure that it hasn't just because if someone reports a bug to you, that doesn't mean they're the first person that found it. They could have been the 10th person to find it, right? Um, and so if we design things with this in mind, um, I know that all of the three major cloud providers actually have security architecture documents. I know because when I worked at Microsoft, I helped write theirs. I was going <laughs> to say ours. I'm like, you don't work there anymore. Um, <laughs> Um, and so like that would be a big conversation for us to go over the whole thing. But I would definitely say monitor all that can be monitored, log all that can be logged, protect your logs as though they have very great value and alert upon anyone trying to access your logs. Because what bad people do, and by that I mean malicious actors, is they will try to alter your logs. They'll try to erase their tracks because they're smart. Um, well, some of them are. <laughs> um, <laughs> when you have incidents, so whenever you have any security incidents, I suggest conducting a postmortem after to see what happened and to try to figure out a way to prevent it from happening in the future. And so, for instance, if you are seeing problems with like, well, there's a box that was outside the firewall. Well, how did that happen? So uh, using the five whys. So why was it outside the firewall? Well, it's because it was made for a test. Okay, so like, 
why did that test happen outside the firewall rather than inside the firewall? Well, I couldn't get approval because of this. So I just did that. Okay, so why couldn't you get approval when you needed approval to do your job? Oh, because this takes three weeks. Okay, so why does this take three weeks? And like going through this and because usually when developers or ops folks or like any IT folks break a policy, like 98% of the time it's because they're just trying to get their job done and that policy needs some adjusting. Does that make sense? They're not usually like, yeah, I'm going to mesh stuff up at work. I'm going to cause a problem. Like, no. Um, <laughs> it's usually a person that's just like, it's 6 p.m. Like everyone's gone home and I know that I'm supposed to wait for the DBA, but I also know how to get the passwords out of the database this way. And, um, or I can like go around <laughs> it like this. So then they break the policy, right? So we need, right. first of all, to fix the problem of how they are getting those production passwords out of the database. <laughs> and then second of all, we need to figure out a way that we can make sure they have the access they need to complete their job responsibilities, right? And so you can improve your processes by following all... So, um, but the importance there is that I'm a big believer in preparing for incidents a lot in hopes that they don't happen or they happen mm. less because of all the preparation. So take that into account and monitor all that can be monitored, protect your logs, um, use a SIM, so like a security information and event management system. So all of those logs, including logs from your applications and your APIs. So you should be writing custom logs. And I have a book a blog post about what to log and what not to log should all be going directly into the SIM and the people in the security operations center should be able to see that. And they should be able to see like, Oh, someone's called this API a hundred times now. And that's why this alert came up. Someone needs to go talk to that team and see what's happening. Or like, is it all from the same IP or is like, there is, is it black Friday and there's a sale happening right now. And maybe that's what's really going on. Right. But like, if we aren't alerting, on the things and we don't have someone watching the alerts. So this is a big problem in app security. So you've stressed the importance of keeping a hold of the log, completely agree. But especially in a cloud context, storing logs costs money. How long do I store logs for? Oh my for? gosh, this is such an important question that I don't know that I can give the answer to accurately. Because <laughs> like if you're in a startup <laughs> or like if you're doing big data analysis, Okay, so I would say security alerts perhaps could be kept longer than non-security alerts, if that makes sense. And then where am I putting them in your mind? Do I leave them up in my cloud environment somewhere or do I export them off-site to a SIM like oh, you were Oh, so ideally about? the SIM would be in the cloud too. So like the SIM okay. software ideally would be in the cloud and it feeds into them and then it creates the alerts that's interesting architecturally because I can make an argument for it the other way too. But uh, but yeah, to have okay. It, to have it off. To have it off site, right? Yeah. Um, but if you're trying to go all cloud, you really want it in the cloud, and you want it close to your events and you know and all that stuff. So I, I can see it either way. You definitely need to protect that system and especially mm -hmm. the access. Today's episode of Day Two Cloud is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring platform for cloud scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog provides dashboarding, alerting, application performance monitoring, and log management in one tightly integrated platform so you can get end-to-end -end visibility quickly. And it integrates seamlessly with AWS so you can start monitoring EC2, RDS, ECS, and all your other AWS services in minutes. Visualize key metrics, set alerts to identify anomalies, and collaborate with your team to troubleshoot and fix issues fast. Try it yourself by starting a free 14-day trial and installing the agent. Plus, you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. 
Visit datadog.com slash day2cloud to get started. That's datadog.com slash D-A-Y-T-W-O cloud to get started. I would say, so for, for logs, yes, it costs a fortune. After a certain point, taking them offline and like putting them somewhere else where it costs less money to hold them sounds like a good idea. As for how long you keep the logs, there's a lot of laws around that. So it depends on, so I'm a huge fan of classifying your data and labeling it and depending upon what is being logged on. So like some tools are very verbose. When you're writing custom apps, it does not need to be verbose. You don't need to log very much. Like you can log every single interaction that happens if you want to, but usually businesses are like, I don't want to pay for that, Tanya. I don't care what happens in your calendar app. Right. Right. And so instead I would bare minimum just log the security alerts. Like, right, so you could tag that. So your every every single transaction that goes through my calendar, every event that gets added, that could get logged somewhere. But you could tag that as application data that could expire after you know fourteen days or something. Yeah, and then security related maybe authentication events, you would tag that separately with something that would be retained for longer. Is that kind of what you're thinking? That is what I dream of. Yes. (laughs) What I see happening is very different. I have, when I did custom apps, almost every single client was like, Oh, I don't want to pay for that. And so we would just log security things. And I also worked as a developer where I figured out that we were logging security things into an email box that no one was checking. Like maybe we should send this to the security team. And the security team was like, this is so annoying. We don't want this. And I was like, why are we logging if no one is viewing these logs? Why are we sending alert emails to an, an email box no one is checking? Right. What that brings up doing? an interesting <laughs> issue because a lot of what you've been mentioning is visibility. You you love the visibility of the cloud because you log in, you got this great dashboard, you've got security center, or uh, it's called something cute in AWS, like, I don't know. Guard duty? Telescope or something like that. It's it's really weird, but it's something. Uh, guard duty is one of them, but they have another one. I, of course, it's escaping they my have mind a few. right now. Yeah. But so visibility is great, but if there's too much to look at, or like your inbox is getting overwhelmed, then you can't sift through it and you just like tune it out. It becomes white noise. So how do you take all of these events and logs and munch through them and actually get some actionable data out of it? So in security, we call that alert fatigue. And ideally the SIM is supposed to do that for you. There are mixed results. Um, yeah, so, uh, Microsoft created their own SIM and it's supposed to be the world's most quiet SIM. And I've had people say it's too quiet. I think it's lying. Um, and they're worried that it's missing legit stuff. When I was a CISO, we, we bought a SIM and there are hundreds of alerts per day and we were a little shop and I was like, it'll take me a week to follow up on alerts from today. What do we do? So we just started looking for the super weird ones and we started doing what we call in the industry tuning. So with security tools, you tune them and you start, you're like, we have this much capacity. So you tune things down so that you have this much coming out of it and you see the most likely to be bad stuff. And you do that based on what your risk appetite is. So for instance, if you have top secret data for the government, you check every alert. 
<laughs> However, if you're making a calendar app, you're like, is stuff on fire? Nah, I'm going for lunch, right? And it, it's about like what you're trying to protect because you don't want to spend a million dollars protecting something that costs a million dollars, right? Like, or that has the value of a million dollars. Um, so you have to decide like how important it is to your organization versus what your organization can afford. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very weird because breaches or, or application security incidents make up, you know, between 30 and 40% of all the security incidents at an organization. But when you look at the math and the budgets that organizations have, app security is usually at like 5% or 2% even compared right. to network security, identity, um, enterprise security, like web filtering, and like email filtering, phishing protections, things like that. App security gets this tiny amount. And then they're like, why do we have breaches all the time? I'm like, because you like you, you statistically decided to underfund us, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know what else to yeah. tell you. Like I, I speak in math cause I'm a nerd and I'm looking at your math and your math says you don't care. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know what to do for you, sir. Um, yeah, sometimes I like have too much lip when I speak to, yeah, <laughs> anyway. Well, we certainly don't mind. <laughs> Thank um, you. So you've got your AppSec folks, you got your developers, you got your ops people. It's, it's a lot of different people trying to solve a problem. Um, yes. And we came up with DevOps to try to get the developers and ops team working together. And then I heard the term DevSecOps. And I was like, well, it kind of sounds like security is just being tacked on here. So is there more to it? Is DevSecOps really a thing or is it just like the latest marketing buzzword? So <laughs> some vendor can sell me a box of security O's. I love it. Okay, so here's my definition of DevSecOps. So uh, I have this friend named Imran, he's awesome. And I, I was explaining to him like, oh, I'm an AppSec person, but I mostly worked in like waterfall and agile. And like, I'm moving over to some DevOps and I, I need to know what to do. Like, what is DevSecOps? And he's like, Tanya, it's what we've always done. It's application security, but you just adjust yourself. So you fit in with what Dev and Ops are doing. So hmm. I'm like, oh, so if they're using a pipeline, then I want to try to get some time in that pipeline. And if they're all doing their work in sprints, then I need to figure out how to make my security activities fit into a sprint, right? Or I need to give them feedback within that short amount of time of a sprint rather than with a waterfall where it's like, oh, I'll get back to you in six months, right? So <laughs> if they're doing three-week sprints, then I need to figure out a way to like test a subset of that stuff and get them results so that they can fix it. I can't tell them like, oh, you know, three months later, here's results for that old code that doesn't apply anymore. No one's interested mm. in that. So it's DevSecOps is sort of, in my opinion, what the security people need to do to adjust themselves so that we can not break all the cool stuff DevOps are doing. Like we, we can't be this giant bottleneck. Like teams that are like, oh, I'm going to put like this slow SAST tool into the pipeline. It only runs four hours. I'm like, no, you're going to have <laughs> no friends, no friends. You can't do that. Instead, let's figure out a different way to automate this where it's outside the pipeline and then we get the results or we do a subset of the code, et cetera, et cetera, right? So in my opinion, DevSecOps is about the security team adjusting themselves so that they fit into the DevOps processes. Mm. And we help instead of hinder, yes, 
<laughs> that does seem to be the case is a lot of people well at first it was developers want to go fast and break things and ops was like whoa whoa slow your roll there buddy we're ops right. and we do things at our pace so you give that package to me and i'll get it out in a month when it gets to the change review board and then we got ops on board they're like okay okay we'll do this we'll, we'll roll it out we'll do daily deployments whatever whatever it is and then security's like whoa 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 Slow your roll there, buddy. <laughs> the department of no. stuff we need to put in place. Looks like you left a port open there. We're going to have to back this truck all the way up. So now, like you're saying, security is is getting on board a little bit as well. I'm curious if you have like a, a real world example where you were in that process or you saw someone in that process, and what does it look like from like the developer writing code to stuff actually going out the door in a real environment? So this is literally what I do all the time. So I'm going to try not to throw a hundred examples. Um, okay. <laughs> but so, so for instance, so let's say you hire a penetration tester to come in and, or a security assessor to come in and they do like this in-depth test of your app, right? So that doesn't fit very well into a DevOps process, but let's say your security team decides to do that, right? Then after they take those results and they fit them in to your sprints. So they're like, these are really critical. This needs to go in the next sprint that you have. And then these are, you know, we can put these in the backlog for like the next three sprints, let's say. But what they can do is they can take those results and they can work with the dev team instead of adding those as test. So, so a thing with pen tests, those same developers made those same mistakes all over all your apps or all over all your infrastructure. Right. And so you can take those results and you can turn them into unit tests and then spread them to, so you write them for one app and then you adjust them and spread them to all of the unit tests. So then the developers run those before they check their code in and they're like, oh, I failed this like weirdo test from the security team, damn. <laughs> so then we are getting regressive security testing, right? So then each time those tests are happening. So then another thing you can do is like, so there's like certain things that just, are happening in lots of apps everywhere that are a problem, like cross-site scripting. So cross-site scripting is in something like two-thirds of apps, and it's actually really dangerous. Um, and so you can make a bunch of unit tests for that, and then again, proliferate it to all of the things. So here you are, you've added a couple seconds to the unit tests, but because you've mm -hmm. copied it across, like you will need to do some adjustments, but across all of the apps, you haven't slowed down the pipeline, You've pushed as much left as you can, so it's before it even goes into any pipeline, right? And then you've essentially like regression tested for a whole bunch of security problems, so it hasn't even got into the pipeline. Another thing that I've seen some teams do is, so there's a release pipeline, and they'll put really emergency security tests in it, like scanning for secrets. So just the new code that goes in, so just the delta, only looking to see, is there a username and password? Does that look like a hash? Does that look like something that is a secret? And if so, mm -hmm. it breaks the build because that is like the end of the world for the security team. That is a really big, expensive deal. So it breaks the build. It automatically triggers the incident. If you can, I have actually seen one example at a conference where they coded it to rotate the secret on the spot, which is amazing mm -hmm. because like it was checked into GitHub and then they automatically rotated it that fast, which is incredible, right? So that check will take like four seconds or something in the pipeline. It's so fast. But then let's say I have super slow tests that I want to do. And I know Dev and Ops don't want to wait, but I still want them done. So I can make what we call the asynchronous pipeline or like a parallel pipeline. 
So like I use a lot of GitHub actions and stuff, but I know you can do this in Jenkins and all the other popular ones. So like you, the developer or ops person checks in a change and then it goes, you know, and it runs some of your tests and then it's like, I'm going to push it to dev because it built and it looks good. And it does this and this. We can have another one that goes off to this other security area and I can just have it run 18 hours of tests. It doesn't stop your release. It hopefully doesn't annoy any of you. And then I come in, you know, the next day and then I just like sort through and I'm like, okay, so these three things concern me. So can we talk about those and like getting that into your next sprint? And meanwhile, like I got to have the automation of my test run, right? So like they're automated. So I don't have to sit there and manually do a bunch of crap. I don't like to do things twice. That's why I learned to code. <laughs> and, and so like you can also for instance like scan your infrastructure as code to make sure that nothing scary is in there and then you can work with your ops team to do security as code so okay so you're going like you're creating these awesome infrastructure as code uh, scripts can i look at them because i'd like to automatically harden the things inside there so i want to add a line that closes all the ports except this one i want to add you know, we have this policy that all public facing infrastructure is HTTPS only available. And so can we codify this policy into your infrastructure as code? And then like, I'm your best friend. I'm so happy with you. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Thank no, that's you. great. And it, it's good to hear that DevSecOps is a real thing <laughs> and not just this uh, this thing you hear about at conferences and, and somebody can sell you it. So, there's there's varying awesome. levels of quality to people that say that term. So just like the term DevOps. So I interviewed <laughs> at um, a startup that I was really, really considering joining. And then I met their um, CTO and he told me, so his CEO said, yes, our product is made out of DevOps. And I'm like, it's not a substance. It's not like water. <laughs> and she's like, no, it's made out of DevOps. She's like, talk to our CTO. So the CTO is like, yeah, we can only afford one tech person right now. And I do dev and ops. So like we do DevOps. And I was like, oh, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I now know for sure. I don't want to work here because you're the head tech. And that is your definite. He's like, yo, we can't afford to pay someone. So like I do dev and ops. I'm like, oh, DevOps. Anyway, so like that was like very disappointing. So there are people that say, oh, I do DevSecOps, but really what they are trying to do is put like an 18-hour SaaS tool into a pipeline and they're losing all their friends in their IT department. Or, you know, there's products out there that are really, really good standalone manual tools for in-depth testing that are very high quality and important. They're valuable. But then they're like, I'm going to shove it into a pipeline. And we're like, we're DevOps ready. I'm like, no, 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 you're not. You're not. Sweetheart, calm down. I know that that's a buzzword. Can't you, can't you just say blockchain 20 times instead? Because that also doesn't apply to what you're doing. And it's also, you know, anyway, sorry. No, their, their tool also does AI and ML. It's fine. It's just, yes, yes, yes. And it works at the edge on Kubernetes. Yes. Ding, 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 ding. You win Everybody the internet. Drink. You got it all. People are like venture capitalists just tackle you to the ground. They're like, take our money. All right. Well, as we start to wrap up, we like to ask our guests to come up with a few key takeaways for listeners. So if you could think of like two or three things that would be a key takeaway for them, what would they be? Okay. So first of all, every person ever listening to this, turn on multi-factor authentication for any important account. If you care about it, 
turn it on at home and at work. I'm so not kidding. This messes attackers up. Next, <laughs> and tell your friends, tell the people you love to do that because otherwise you have to help win their identity stolen, right? Like you end up doing all the tech support, like let's be real here. Also, when you go to the cloud, make sure you pay attention to the perimeter, but also zero trust. Make sure you apply all of those lessons to your applications and your infrastructure. So zero trust applies to apps too. Don't forget to secure your apps because you are probably the entire security team at first. And take advantage of every free cloud native tool that your provider is giving you because you are actually paying for them. So you might as well use them. So flip them on, see if they work, especially like things like Azure has this thing you can just flip on that it's called just in time. It just closes all of your ports. It just closes them all. It's like, don't worry, I got this. And you can only open them by doing like a certain thing. And then mm -hmm. it's very clear who's doing it. And it's just like, oh, this just isn't a problem anymore. And so yeah. figure out what your cloud provider is offering and take full advantage because you are paying for that. Yeah, just in time VM. That's my favorite feature they introduced in like the last two years. Oh yeah. Oh, I like <laughs> yeah, it. I like awesome. it. <laughs> well, if people want to know more about you and I'm sure that they do, where can they follow you? Where can they find you online? So if you look up shehackspurple.dev, that is my website where I sell amazing courses that teach you actually how to do this. Um, also, just if you look up shehackspurple, that's me, that's Tanya Janka. So I have YouTube, Twitch, Mixer, like every single thing you can think of. I have like blogs all over the place. I am at large on the internet being a huge nerd. And <laughs> I share, I would say most of my content for free. So yeah, I have a, a lot to share. And um, I actually have a, a few different talks about cloud security and I have a free cloud security workshop on my YouTube channel. So like fill your boots, which is Canadian for <laughs> go do it and enjoy. <laughs> fill your boots. Fill awesome. your boots. <laughs> All right, Tanya. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Yeah. Thanks to our guests for appearing on Day 2 Cloud. And thanks to you, dear listener. Virtual high fives for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we'd love to hear them. Hit either of us up on Twitter at ECBanks or at Ned1313 or fill out the form on my fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. If you like engineering-oriented shows like this one, visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe. All of our podcasts, newsletters, and websites are there. It's all nerdy content designed for your professional career development. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. <laughs> <laughs>